Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That is the third time when he appeared to them as a group. Our next hymn is a prayer, a prayer that God by his spirit would open up his word to us as we study it together and that his spirit would apply it to us. Hymn number 146, Break Thou the Bread of Life.
You may be seated, and let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to worship you this day in the company of your people. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you are present in our midst and that you are working. We're thankful, Father, for the connectedness that exists between us and brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they may be, anywhere in the world. Father, we're grateful that you have brought some of these to us today. We thank you, Father, for these young people and for their parents and their teachers, for those who lead in that great church in Knoxville. We pray, Father, that you would burn the truths that these have sung to us upon their hearts, that they would never forget. We pray, Father, that you would use this great group of young people for decades ahead to build the kingdom of Jesus. We pray that you would keep each of them from the sins that scar so badly. We pray, Father, that you would be very close to them and that they would understand fully the joy of the grace that you have displayed in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, for all the churches that uh, preach the gospel in our land and around the world. We pray, Father, for churches that this church has helped to plant in recent years. And we pray that you would prosper them as they worship today, as they seek to win men and women, boys and girls, to the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would help us to remember the lesson that you were teaching these church planters who were uh, in your church planting school. Father, we pray that each of us would remember that if we seek to build uh, a spiritual work in our own strength, that we're doomed to fail. But Father, that you desire to empower us, to give us strength, to do a work for you that lasts for eternity. Father, I pray that Christ would be seen this morning and not me. I thank you, Father, for your goodness and your grace to us in this service. Thank you for the freedom that we have experienced here to worship you according to the dictates of our conscience. Again, serve us the bread of life, Father. We're needy people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. F.B. Meyer has written this in his commentary on the Gospel of John. There is not a cross, a loss, a disappointment, a case of failure in your life which is not arranged and controlled by the loving Savior and intended to teach some lesson which else could never be acquired. Now, I listen to people read things, and I know it's hard to, to get it all first time through, so I want to read that again because it's so important. There is not a cross, a loss, a disappointment, a case of failure in your life which is not arranged and controlled by the loving Savior and intended to teach some lesson which else could never be acquired. Do you agree with that big statement by the English Baptist preacher and commentator who lived in the last part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century? Do you really believe that your failures, your disappointments, and losses have been arranged and controlled by the loving Savior and intended to teach you some lesson that you could not acquire any other way? Do you really believe that the relationship 
that ended in a disaster, that the career that never was because maybe you failed some key course in school, the child that was rebellious, the job that came to an end, the Bible study that never came together when you worked so hard to make it do that, whatever failure you have experienced was arranged and controlled by the loving Savior and intended by him to teach you some lesson that you could never have gotten absent that failure. Well, Reverend Meyer believes that, and he believes that our text teaches that this morning, John 21, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> the event in our text uh, takes place after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has validated his bodily resurrection from the tomb by appearing four times to either individuals or a couple individuals who happen to be together. On two other occasions before this event, he has met with his disciples and apostles. Uh, on that first meeting, they were gathered and Thomas wasn't present. John records that incident for us in the previous chapter. And then the following week, Jesus appears again to his apostles and his disciples. Thomas is there, and you know how that, in that dramatic way, Jesus reestablishes Thomas' uh, faith for him. Now, these appearances were all in Judea, in or near the city of Jerusalem. But on resurrection morning, the angel at the tomb, and then later Jesus himself, in addressing women, said that they were to go and communicate a message to his apostles and disciples. And that message was that Jesus wanted to have a reunion with them in the place where it all had begun, in Galilee. That's where Jesus' ministry had started. You remember his first miracle was at Canaan in Galilee. The apostles were from that area. In John 21, 1 through 14, we see that Jesus' apostles have obeyed his command. They have gone back home to Galilee, and they were waiting for Jesus to appear to them in the way that Jesus had commanded. Now, the apostles that are mentioned in 21, 1 and 2 are fishermen. It's the spring of the year. These fishermen are by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also called Galilee and actually uh, is even called by another name. It's not really a sea. It's a lake that's seven and a half miles wide and about 13 miles long. Now, it might have been a great night for these men to do what they loved to do and what they were trained to do. Peter, who's a natural leader in the group, says, I am going fishing the six others who are present say, we're going with you. Now, I don't think there's anything unusual. I don't think there's anything sinful about these men doing what they decide to do on this night. They can both wait for Jesus to come and also go fishing. Now, we are told that Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel, James and John, that is the sons of Zebedee, we know who they are, are in the group. There are also two unidentified disciples present. Now, some commentators say that these two are probably not apostles, that if they had been apostles, that John would have mentioned them by name. 
Now, I wouldn't want to die on this altar, but I think that those other two men actually are apostles, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. I think there's a good chance that it's the apostle Andrew, who is one of the unnamed, Peter's brother, and the apostle Philip, who was in close association with Nathaniel, who is named uh, in our text as one of those who is ready to fish. And I believe these are all apostles, although again, I would not die for this, because we're told that the New Testament church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, is built upon the foundation of the apostles. And in this fishing experience, Jesus will teach one of the most essential and absolutely essential church building lesson to those who are the first church planters, the foundation of the New Testament church. I'd like you to see, first of all, the apostles' failure. These men, remember, are not fishing novices. They fished this lake from the time that they were children until their call to follow Jesus about three years prior to this night. Some, if not all of them, are professional fishermen. They've earned their living on this lake. They know how to fish it. They know when to fish it. They know where to fish it in order to catch fish. But look at 21.3b. It says they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They applied all their knowledge, all of their experience. They invested all of their energy, and nothing happened that particular night. They had nothing to show for their efforts. In 21, 4 through 5, as the first light of day appears, Jesus, standing on the shore, calls to them. Now, they do not know that it is he when he asks, children, do you have any fish? But they answer with a simple no, and I would suggest to you that that no is a disheartened no, a discouraged no, a defeated no. Now, I lived in North Carolina, my wife and I did, for about 13 years. We planted a church there in Wilmington. We lived two miles from the ocean. There was an older gentleman in my church, and he loved to fish. He had a boat. He also loved to fish uh, in the surf, and he taught me to fish. And I would go down there with some regularity, you know, waders on and wade into the surf and fish. And what I hated just about as much as anything that I hate in life is when some other people would come walking down the beach, I had caught absolutely nothing, and they'd say, how's the fishing today? Oh, I hated that when that happened. And I imagine that Jesus' question had a similar impact on these men. Now, why do you think these men have nothing to show at all for their labors that night? Do you think their failure is because they just have bad luck? Do you think it's because the weather? Maybe the weather's a problem. You know, you catch fish in some kinds of weather and maybe not so much in other kinds. Or is there some flaw in their approach to fishing? All of a sudden, did some glitch get into their uh, modus operandi for fishing and so they didn't catch anything? If this account has any spiritually significant application for you all, for me, we have got to answer no to all of the questions that I posed. The reason the fishermen caught 
no fish, is that the one who creates and sustains everything in the universe, animate and inanimate, arranged for them to fail on this night. One commentator has written, one who was too wise to err, too good to be unkind, and who was preparing to teach them a lesson which would enrich them and the whole church forever, carefully arranged it. That is their failure to catch fish on this night, disappointing and as vexing though it was. What was the lesson the master teacher was preparing his apostles and us to learn? Well, let's go back a bit to the beginning of their ministries. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, about three years prior, they are on this same lake or at this same lake. Luke calls the lake by one of its other names. Jesus is teaching a crowd, and the crowd presses upon him, and so the best way for him to project and teach is to get into Peter's boat and push it out a little bit and preach to the crowd. When he's done preaching, he tells the apostles to get in the boat. There's also another boat that's close by, and they go out into the deep. And Jesus says to them in Luke 5, 1 through 11, right after they have been called to be apostles, these fishermen, put out into the deep water, let down your nets for a catch. Now, we are told by Luke that Jesus' command to do that came after another night when these men had been out and caught nothing. And Peter reminds Jesus of that unsuccessful excursion, but he quickly obeys Jesus. And he has the nets put down because Jesus is the one who commands it. As soon as the nets are set out in the water, the fishermen pull the nets, and they, can't, they have so many fish in them that the nets begin to break. They call the other boat over. They fill that boat with part of the catch. Both boats are taking on water and in danger of sinking because there are so many fish. The apostles are astonished, astonished by this great catch of fish. And Simon immediately realizes how the nets have come to be filled. Jesus has performed a miracle. Luke tells us that Peter, when he saw this tremendous miracle, experienced it. He fell at Jesus' feet and he said, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's scared to death. Why is that? He knows from the miracle that he is in the presence of the most holy and omnipotent God-man who can sink any number of boats he wants with as much fish as he wants at his will and at his command. Jesus responds by saying to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, Jesus regularly uses that metaphor, doesn't he, in Scripture for spreading the gospel, for building the kingdom, for doing evangelism. Most of us know that in Matthew 4, 19, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We sung that little chorus about that when we were, when we were little kids. So Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, right after he calls these men to be apostles, miraculously filled their boats to overflowing with fish, Luke 5. Now, in John 21, Jesus fills their nets again, 
as he prepares them to go out and build churches and do ministry without his physical, his bodily presence on earth. He's going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we said a little while ago in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is teaching his followers the message that he will put into words on that night in which he was betrayed in that upper room. And you remember there, after washing the feet of his apostles, in John 15, 5, he articulated this lesson to them. As he said, without me, you can do nothing. If these apostles and those men and women who will follow them don't come to believe that message completely, there will be no church. If they attempt to make converts with their own persuasive ability and their logic, if they attempt to build churches according to their vision and their strategy, if they seek to keep believers working together in love and harmony with their management skills, their native ability, if they seek to fund ministries by appealing to people to give, and there's nothing going on inside of those people that's provoked by the Holy Spirit of God, the church will crash and burn, and the people who are laboring so hard will experience frustration and discouragement. Remember how Jesus told Peter on another occasion, I, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace, the strength I give, the energy I give, what I infuse you with is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said he was glad to be in a position where he knew he was weak and unable to succeed in his own strength so that Christ's power might rest on him. He said in 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew that you cannot do a spiritual work in your own strength. Paul knew that the only way spiritual work can be accomplished, things that last in the kingdom of God, is if they are done in the power of the Spirit of the risen Christ. Now look, Jesus isn't teaching his apostles and us here in Luke 5, 1 through 11, in our text, chapter 21. If you try to do spiritual work in your own strength, you won't do as well as if you did that work in my strength. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is teaching that without me, you can do nothing. Now, you are thinking people, and so it's very important that I tell you that if the gospel is shared, if people are gathered together and the gospel is preached, there are some good things that can happen. I can't say that nothing good will happen if the gospel is preached. I know that there have been people who have been converted when ministers who did not believe the gospel at all preached the gospel because they were expected to preach the gospel and their, their churches demanded that they preach the gospel. They only preached it because they were paid to preach it. Now, Scripture teaches that some things can happen in this scenario. We're told in Hebrews 4.12, the gospel 
is living and it's active. In Romans 1.16, we are told the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In Romans 10.17, we are told that faith cometh by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Now, B.F. Westcott uh, is one of the greatest Greek scholars that ever lived. He was uh, Bishop of Durham uh, over in Great Britain a um, long, long time ago. But he's the go-to person uh, on interpreting Greek text and understanding uh, Greek language in the Greek New Testament. And this is what he says in his commentary on Hebrews. He tells us that the scripture that I read to you from Hebrews, that the word is living and active, he says the scripture has in itself energies of action. So God can accomplish work when his word goes forth, even without us, as the Holy Spirit of God energizes the scripture. So you have a minister who doesn't believe it, he preaches it, the Holy Spirit of God is at work, people can be converted. But do you think your desire should be to have God do spiritual work in spite of us? Shouldn't our desire be to be God's instruments used by him in doing his work? To be, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, co-labors with God? I suggest to you our goal should always be to do God's work in the way that he wants it, to be done so that when we stand at that final judgment and our works are tested as by fire, 1 Corinthians 3, 10, 15, there are things that will last, true spiritual works that were done in the Spirit of God and be rewarded at that time. Now look quickly at the blessing of failure. The risen Lord who has loved these men in their lapses of faith, their obtuseness, their conflict, but in their many successes, purposefully and lovingly causes them to fail this night as they wait for their scheduled meeting with him. He causes them to fail at what they know best. The Lord of earth and sky and sea, and I think this is a miracle, will not allow one fish to enter their nets on that night. He's practicing tough love with them. What is tough love? Tough love is when Somebody needs something or wants something, and somebody else could provide it, but they don't because there's a higher good involved. They don't provide it out of an interest for the long-term good. The lesson these men learned through their failure this night and through tough love is going to make them wildly successful. In the book of Acts, these men, having learned their lesson this night, go out not depending on their own strength, but on the power of Christ's Spirit, and they will preach and teach and heal and organize and resolve conflicts, conflicts and do battle with Satan in ways that produce explosive growth in the church. Now think of Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. They go to the temple and there's a man there who's been born lame and he wants some money. And Peter turns to that man because he's learned his lesson here and in other places. And he says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I unto you in the name of Jesus, not my power, in Jesus' power. Stand up and walk. And the man stands up and walks. These men who are loved by Jesus don't see the blessing of their failure when they look into those empty nets that night. 
And you and I don't generally see Christ's blessing, I don't think, in our failures. But F.B. Meyer has his theology right when he says, there is not a cross, a loss, a disappointment, a case of failure in your life which is not arranged and controlled by the loving Savior and intended to teach some lesson which else could never be acquired. Some failure in high school and college in a course might change your career direction, lead you into something where you'll be much more effective for the Lord and bring glory to Him and much more satisfaction to yourself than if you hadn't failed the course. The failed relationship that caused you so much pain might be the thing that makes you empathetic and and compassionate and makes you a healer of relationships and a person who can work to alleviate the pain and suffering of other people in the church of Jesus and other places. Lack of success in finding a job in one area may cause you to have to move to another area where the sovereign Lord needs you to build a church, bring you personal blessing as you're used in that other place. And the physical limitations that you may have that you wish you didn't have or the pain that, uh, that is intense at times may move you to pursue things that are eternal and absent those problems. Uh, you would not have thought so much about the things that last forever. And if nothing else, failure can cause us to acknowledge that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father. James 1, 17. Do you really believe, let me ask you again, that everything that comes into your life comes through the hand of a Christ who loves you? Do you believe that that is the case with every loss, every pain, every struggle? Do you believe that the things you want so desperately but that you don't have are withheld from a Christ who loves you more than you can ever, you will ever understand? That is the teaching of this text. And it's the witness of the the entirety of Scripture. In what you view as failure, look to see if there are lessons that Christ is teaching that you would unlikely learn absent the disappointment, the loss, and the failure. Now look at how Christ-empowered work succeeds. Jesus, who has not yet been identified, tells the failed fisherman in 12.6, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. Now I want to tell you, to be able to tell somebody that I promised them that, you have to be the son of God, don't you? You know, no fish here, put it over here you'll get fish. Only God can make good on a promise like that. Thinking they have nothing to lose, they obey, and immediately the net is so full that they are not able to haul it into the boat. They have to haul it alongside the boat because of the weight of the fish. Now, John immediately recognizes that this is a miracle, that this is the hand of Jesus again, like back in Luke 5, and he exclaims to Peter in verse 7, it is the Lord. Now, Peter, we know, is a man of action. He immediately jumps into the water to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. He's going to beat the boat in. It's dragging a lot of fish. Uh, John records that the boat was about 300 feet from the shore. You can swim that faster or wade than a boat that's heavily laden with uh, the nets that it has to pull. The other six men land the boat and the net full of fish. 
Now, the first thing that the fishermen notice is that Jesus has a charcoal fire going, and he's roasting fish on it, and there are some loaves of bread. Jesus' first words to these builders of the New Testament church are, verse 10, bring some of the fish you have caught. Now, earlier, when Jesus asked them, children, do you have any fish? Do you really believe it was because he didn't know the answer? Of course not. It wasn't because he didn't know the answer to that question. And when he asked them to bring some of the fish that they have caught to add to what he is grilling, it's not because he can't create more fish out of nothing. It isn't because he must have their fish in order to feed the seven and himself. It is most likely that Jesus requests that they contribute fish so that they will examine the fish in the nets and note the abundance of God's provision in the person of Jesus Christ and the magnitude of the miracle that they have just experienced that Jesus has performed. Peter again responds immediately, hauls the net with its fish in it up onto the beach from the shallow water by the boat. By now, plenty of daylight. John records for us that as they examined the fish, they noted that there were 153 large ones, verse 11. Jesus adds some of their fish to the ones he has created and is in the process of cooking to emphasize, to emphasize the co-laboring nature of the work to which he has called these men. These men and we are being taught that God has ordained that the work of building the church will happen through spirit-led and spirit-empowered human effort. In the verse 5 question, children, do you have any fish? Jesus purposely calls his disciples to consider the absolute failure of trying to do things in their own strength. In the verse 10 command, bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus purposely calls attention to the absolute success that they have achieved while doing Christ's work in the way he commands and in his power. In their power, they fail. In his power, their efforts are incredibly blessed. The men who are part of the foundation of the church are living in a parable. And I think this is so cool. Listen to this as we wrap up here. In the parable, the sea the apostles are on represents the world. The boat they are in represents the church. Those fishing represent all believers since each of us, all of us are tasked with making disciples of men and women, boys and girls. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. The fish caught are the converts. The risen Lord on the shore represents the Savior in heaven who says, lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the age, who empowers us to do the work that he has called us to do when we seek his power. Now, what do you think our lives would be like if we learned the parable? If we believed Christ's words of John 15, without me, you can't do any real spiritual work. If we consistently recognize that anything we attempt to do for Christ in just our own strength is likely to fail. If we prayerfully tested what we propose to do by what is revealed in Holy Scripture, found it to be in accord with Scripture, and asked Christ to prosper what we're about to do that's in accord with his will so that he might receive 
honor and glory and power. I think there would be far less frustration and exhaustion among church members. I believe it would change tremendously our churches, the fear and the worry and the exhaustion that come often come from seeking to do spiritual work in our power and without Jesus' power. There's great joy that comes in being a co-laborer with Jesus as he changes lives and builds his eternal kingdom. Just remember this if you don't remember anything else I've said today. No matter how good a religious teacher you are, I don't care if it's kids, adults, doesn't matter to me. No matter how good a teacher you are, don't ever try to teach in your own ability only. No matter how moral you are, don't try to live like Jesus with the strength of your own character. No matter how good your parenting skills or your grandparenting skills are, don't attempt to raise children from Je for Jesus in your own strength. No matter how good your relational skills are, how gifted you are at fixing things, don't try to keep unity among God's people without seeking the Lord's help. And if you want to see your siblings and your children and your friends and your neighbors respond to the gospel in a positive way when you explain it, seek the Lord's help before you go, his power and strength. Pray as you share it that he will be present, taking the words you speak and driving them into the hearts of those you attempt to, to evangelize. And whatever you do, from the making of life-changing decisions to doing the small things that are so very easy for you to do in your own strength, do everything as a co-laborer of Jesus. Now, you can't be a co-laborer of Jesus if you're not in personal relationship with Jesus. It doesn't work that way. If you don't have Jesus, you cannot have his power. Relationship with him begins by realizing that you sinned, you violated God's law, that there's nothing you can do to get rid of that sin, the stain of it, that your only hope is to accept the Christ of the cross that we've heard about in song today. He's lifted up. You look at him as the sin bearer, the one that God sent to die for your sins in your place, taking your sin and the penalty that you deserve to experience. Risen from the grave, he frees you when you believe in him and when you commit your heart to following Jesus as both Savior and Lord. Father, thank you for this time together, the attention of your people, those who may not know Jesus, we thank you that regularly there are people here who are trying to figure out who this Jesus is. We pray, Father, that today you would create faith in them, that they would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. For those of us who have known Christ for a little while or for decades, help us to remember the lesson that you were always pounding into the hearts and minds of your apostles. That without you, we cannot do spiritual work. We can do nothing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may stand, and we're going to close by singing the doxology with hallelujahs, and then we're going to listen to a benediction from our choir. Would you stand?